Well, I don't know most of you here. I know the drums, and it's nice to see Ryan and Kathleen and my coworker for over 20 years. Ron and I have worked together. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and uh, South Tampa, and grew up a couple of miles away from the water, but I couldn't smell it like I can here. I love walking on your porch and smelling the salt air. That's a wonderful blessing that you have that you probably take for granted like some other things because you have it all the time, but I do love that. I left home after three years at Florida College and started preaching first in Louisville, Kentucky, and then in Cleveland, Mississippi, in the heart of the Delta. And then I went to Concord, North Carolina. And Concord is only important to y'all because it was while I was there that we began a preacher training program and a young man from Cortez, Florida came and worked with us, Brian Bailey. And he was in a training program for us and we spent a summer together. And sad that uh, Brian ended up passing away, but I remember him and his parents came to visit him while he was there. And we often talked about his growing up in Cortez and he just assured me that you can't get any better smoked mullet than right here in Cortez. And I challenged him on that, and he never could prove it, so I'm waiting for some of y'all to do that. All right, I do love smoked mullet. I'll go out of my way for that, and I'm pretty sure that was what Jesus turned into enough to feed those people that it was smoked or fried mullet that did that. And I want to remind you, and you need to remember, that the Bible says, let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. So you got a mullet fry, I'm going to leave you my card. Or smoked mullet, I'm going to leave you my card. You call me, and I'll come, I'll come share mullet with you almost any time. I do love smoked mullet. I'm married, and I have three daughters, and they, nine grandchildren. That's why I got this hair. And Ron and I have worked together as shepherds and co-workers preaching at Henderson Boulevard for many years. When he told me he was staying over this afternoon, I had to change my sermon because the one I have was his. <clears throat> and I knew he was going to hear it again, so... I decided to bring you something else. I'm really happy to be with you. I have not known Kevin, and when he invited me to come, I was really excited to come here. And I really expected there to be hundreds of people here because I ran into them on the road and thought they were all coming tonight. <laughs> I don't know. They must have made a wrong turn, and they're, they're on their way, so we'll stall till they all get here. Man alive, you got some traffic problems here. In Cortez, you've got too nice a place to be. And people are wanting to be here with you. What a blessing it is to be here tonight. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I know you've heard some great lessons on discipleship all week long. You've been hearing from Ian, and you've heard from Edwin, and uh, Frederick. Did Frederick speak? Who was? Yeah, but... Justin, okay. Yeah, that's right. Justin Lewis was here. And uh, then you've heard from Ron, and I'm here to tell you, the Ecclesiastes, I hope, will come true tonight. 
that the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And I, I hope that'll be true. If for no other reason, then you'll say, well, it's over now. And that, that may be it. But I hope there'll be more to it than that. Listen to the reading of Matthew chapter 4. I'm beginning in verse 18. Verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, the task that's been given to me tonight is to answer the question, what makes for a good disciple? What, what are the qualities of a good disciple? And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, let's look at the first ones Jesus called because he didn't just take anybody that was coming. He handpicked these men. And I want you to think about that scene as it occurred. Here's Jesus. Now, he comes from Nazareth. That's where his hometown was. And that's about 20 miles from the Sea of Galilee. So he didn't grow up in a fishing community. But he's gone to Capernaum, and there he's kind of set up his home base. Most of Jesus' ministry will be spent in that city of Capernaum, what little time he spends in a city. But my guess is, it's a guess, but my guess is Jesus is not a fisherman by trade. He doesn't know fishing. So here he is by the sea, and he is getting ready to start his ministry. Now, think about what you would do if you were Jesus, and your mission is to gather to yourself some people who can not only learn from you in a relatively short period of time, because Jesus knew, I don't think Jesus necessarily knew he only had about three years of ministry, but he knew he was going to have a short-lived ministry. He's going to be executed. And he knows that from the beginning of his ministry. He knows he will die an untimely death. So what kind of people are you going to choose? If you're going to handpick some people to invest yourself in, what kind of people are you going to find who can do that? And Jesus knows the hearts of men, so he has that advantage. He's not just looking at resumes on paper, which can be kind of flowery or a little arrogant or boastful. 
Jesus knows hearts, and, and he knows the nature of men, and he picks as the first disciples these men. Now, now picture that scene. Here's a carpenter walking along the seashore, and he comes across this boat. And in that boat are two fishermen. And he chooses them to become his first disciples. What, what was he looking for? What was Jesus wanting? What did he see in these four? Let me just, for the sake of illustration, let's just pick out the four people that are right here. What is it Jesus saw? And I'm sure there are other people fishing along that shore, fishing in boats. But what is it that made Jesus look at all those men that were there and then concentrate on four people and say, you, you, follow me? He hadn't tested them. Who knows the most about the Old Testament? Who can spell Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Or who knows who Melchizedek was? I want to suggest to you, there is something in the text itself that you may have seen or may have overlooked that indicates, to me at least, why it is these men were chosen. And if we can find some indicators of why they were chosen, we might find things about ourselves that make us good disciples. Does that make sense to you? Yes? No? Yes? No? Okay, there's three answers you can give me on that. You can go, yes. You can go, no, that doesn't make sense. Or, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'm getting a few yeses. And those are probably, just go with him so he won't go back over the whole lesson again. <laughs> what, what was it about this scene that might reveal to us why these men were chosen. And let me suggest three things for you. The first thing is they appear to be steady men. They're reliable. And reliable people are the ones you want for discipleship. If you're going to have people follow you, you want people who are reliable. You want people who, when they say they'll show up, they show up. When you ask them, do this work, they get that work done. And, and there's something in the text that indicates about the four of them. You go back and look at the text. Look at it again. Beginning in verse 18. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and what are they doing? They're casting nets into the sea. And it tells you why. They're fishermen. That's what fishermen do. They cast their nets. These men are working. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now look at the next two. Immediately they left their nets and followed in verse 20. And going on from there, 
he saw two other brothers, James and John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. And what are they doing? They're, they're mending nets. Now, I used to joke about James and John. I used to say, the disciples of Jesus evidently weren't great fishermen because you see them a lot of times mending nets. But if you understand fishing, and I know people here do, you have to mend nets if you fish because you're going to get snags and they're going to wear out and you're going to get situations where you've got holes in the net and you've got to repair it. The only net that doesn't need repairing at all is a net that's not being used at all. So let me suggest something to you about these men. They are demonstrating the extremes of the work they do. Two of them are engaged in energy. They're casting nets. They're out there throwing the nets out into the water. They're in a boat and they're casting nets into the water and they're fishing. That's energy. And the other two men are demonstrating economy. Now, I'm not just talking about financial economy, but they are re they're repairing and making their resources continually available. Let's go to another industry and see how that same thing works. A lumberjack begins with a really sharp axe. But if he's smart, and I've talked to some guys who do that, he doesn't take that sharp axe and go out there for days hacking away at trees trying to cut them down. He'll cut some trees down, and then you know what he'll do? He'll sit down and sharpen the axe again. Why? Because he needs to keep the axe sharp. A fisherman who doesn't repair his nets is going to have problems. My father wasn't a saltwater fisherman as much as he was freshwater fisherman. Our I remember on one occasion, my father and mother were gone, and our bird had gotten out. We had a parakeet, and my parents told them, don't let the bird out of the cage. And my sister and I did. And we couldn't get the bird to go back in the cage. We carried the cage all over the house, and the bird would fly from one curtain rod to the other and to the other. And we finally got fed up with that and tired, and I said, Dad's got a fishing net in the utility room. And I got that net, and that bird went by, and I <laughs> caught him. Totally entangled him in the net. Couldn't get him out. So I said to my sister, get the scissors. And we cut the bird out and got the bird back in the cage. But I didn't tell my dad, who went fishing and tried to pull in a bass that was about to break his line, he said, get the net. And the guy he was fishing with got the net, put it right underneath, and the fish went right through it back down into the water. My dad came home, who's been messing with my net? You repair the net so you can do your work. All right, now I'm going to make a point about that that I think is really important for us as disciples. 
It is important for us to be energetic about sharing the gospel with other people. That's really important. But if you're not sharpening your axe, if you're not repairing your nets, if you're not studying the word, you're not going to be very effective in reaching other people. You're just not. It's the people who spend time in sharpening their axes who are really effective in cutting down those trees. Sweat and study are both important to a disciple. But I'm going to tell you something. I think perhaps we may be spending more time sharpening our axes than we're spending in using them. If the Word of God is food, and the Bible says it is, it's bread, it's water, the Bible talks about it in those, it is meat, the milk and meat of the Word. I sometimes wonder if we're not becoming spiritually obese and not using the food that we're taking in to help those around us. It'd be a great thing to have an axe that's as sharp as a surgical tool. But if you never take it outside and cut a tree down, what good is it? And if week after week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year, we come together and learn, 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 and don't ever take it to anybody else. We're forgetting that we're called as fishers of men, not just menders of nets. We're called as lumberjacks who cut down trees, not just men and women who sharpen axes. Does that make sense to you? It's important for us to share the word with people. It's important for us to let them see Christ living in us. To let the light out. You remember how Jesus put that? No man lights a candle and does what with it? Puts it under a bushel. Because it's not going to provide light for anybody else. It may light up under the bushel really well, but nobody else is going to benefit from that. So, so my first point is, Jesus picked disciples who were steady disciples. He picked men, and, and I'm going I'm to go further. What was Matthew doing when Jesus picked him? He wasn't a retiree. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a retiree, but it's not as though he picked Matthew, who seemed to be really enjoying a vacation. Matthew's working. I'm persuaded that the disciples, when they were picked by Jesus, were showing industriousness. They were working. Now, would that be true for us today? If Jesus came to your town or my town, would we be the kind of people he'd say, that's a hard worker, I want to make him work for me. I want that kind of person the steady 
consistent disciple. There was a college football coach who sent out one of his scouts. And he said, I want you to go into this town and I want you to look for good football players for us. We need the right kind of football player. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. He says, you're going to go out there and you're going to watch a practice and you're going to see a guy and he's going to get leveled by somebody else. He's going to get just plowed over on the line, run right over, and he ain't going to get up. And the scout said, we don't want that guy, do we, coach? He said, no, we don't want that guy. He said, now you're going to watch some other guys out there on the field. And he says, they're going to get plowed over, and they're going to get back up. They're going to get right back down in that three-point stance on the line, and they're going to get hit again, and they're not going to get up. And he said, we don't want that guy, do we, coach? He said, no, we don't. He said, you're going to see some other guys, and they're going to get hit and knocked on their back, and they're going to get up, and they're going to get hit, and they're going to get knocked on their back, and they're going to get hit, and they're going to get knocked on their back again. And he said, that's the guy we want, right, coach? And he said, no, I want the guy who keeps hitting them and knocking them on their back. See, that's the consistency. That's what the Lord wants from us. He wants consistent disciples, steady disciples. And what does that mean? They're not just fishing, they're mending nets. They're repairing their lives so that they can be fit to win souls for Jesus Christ. Second thing I note about these men, they are submissive disciples. The very word disciple means, you know this already, I, I have no doubt you've heard this more than once in this series you've had. A disciple's a follower. It's an imitator. It's more than just a follower. It's somebody who wants to follow so closely they imitate the person they're following. Jesus said to these disciples, look at the text, follow me. My New American Standard actually has a note in verse 19 that says what he literally said was, come here after me. Now, if you compare this to the other accounts in Mark and Luke, you'll have the combination of those words. Some of the Gospels will tell you he said, come with me, and others said, follow me. Let me, let me tell you, there's a, there's a little difference in those two words. When Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, come after me. Watch where I go, and then go there yourself. When he says, on the other hand, come with me, he's talking in terms of a special relationship that he has with them. That they're going to be by his side. They're going to be in his company. You and I can be disciples who follow Jesus. We can't be disciples who come with him. He's not with us now. Not in that very way. So Jesus is looking for disciples who are comfortable with his camaraderie, 
and they are comfortable with obedience. Camaraderie, come with me. Obedience, follow after me. I cannot explain to you how it would be that these men would have possibly heard Jesus for the very first time, having never met him at all, and Jesus walked up to their boat and said, hey, you two, come follow me. And they said, okay, we'll do it. This is not a cheap Jedi mind trick. You know, you will follow me, we'll follow you. It's not that kind of thing. Most commentators say probably James and John, Peter and Andrew, had heard Jesus already. They had heard him preach and they became convinced he had something to say. And it was only after that that he said, come follow me, and they left their nets to follow him. But the point is, they immediately, do you see that word? It's there twice. Immediately followed him. Let me tell you what that's not. That is not, well, my wife and I never make decisions without sleeping on it first. So I'm going home to her tonight, and I'm going to pray about it, and we're going to talk about it, and if we decide that your call for me to be a disciple is a good proposition, then maybe tomorrow we'll do that. You don't read that. You don't read the disciples saying to Jesus, tell me more. I want to know what I'm in here for. I don't want to jump because I've done that before. I've invested in other propositions and it didn't come true and I want to be very careful before I commit myself to you. You and I you and I cannot imagine the depth of trust these disciples had to have in Jesus to do what they did. Come. Follow me immediately, not in an hour, not next day, not a week later, immediately they followed him. Most of us made a decision to follow Jesus and we thought about it for a while. And I am persuaded, as I've told you, that these disciples haven't met Jesus for the first time. It may be that he's already had such an impact on them and he knows that, that when he asks them, they've been thinking about doing that for quite a while. And his offer is just the last push they needed to drop the nets and follow him. But they are submissive disciples. And that's what Jesus needs. That's what he wants from us. He wants disciples not who say, well, let me think about that before I do it. Lord, you know, you remember when Jesus, Jesus would ask disciples to do things and occasionally he'd meet one who would say, not so, Lord. 
Those words don't belong together. Not so doesn't belong with Lord. If he's Lord, whatever he says is to be done. It's the word of the sovereign ruler of the universe. We can't tell him no. True disciples can't do that. Now we may debate what Jesus said and what he meant by what he said. We can certainly do that, but what we cannot do is debate whether we will do what Jesus said. Remember how Jesus asked it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I tell you? He asked that question because those are incompatible reactions. You can't call him Lord and not do what he tells us to do. Disciples never question what their Lord wants them to do. They never disobey. True disciples, good disciples, never disobey their Lord. And these disciples don't do that. In John chapter 7, after that great feast that Jesus made for those disciples out of five loaves and two mullet, in verse 66, I'm sorry, not uh, verse 66 there. Uh, John, J uh, John chapter 6, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. And they were not walking with him anymore. Now, you know what I'm going to tell you? That very verse says they lost their disciple cards. From that point on, they are no longer disciples. You know why? Because they're not following him. That's what disciples do. And Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And listen to what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. What Peter says is, what could we do differently than following you? You are the one. That is total submission to his will. Good disciples are steady. Good disciples are submissive. Third and final point, good disciples are surrendering. Back in our text, back in John, uh, Matthew. Look at this. I'm going to read it again. I want you to look at the surrender, the sacrifice of discipleship here. 
As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Three things. They left nets, boats, and family. Or, to put it another way, they surrendered their fortune, which was fishing. That's what they do. They're fishermen. And listen, this is a family business. This is what they do. You got people like that right here in this community, maybe in this room. This is what we do. This is what I have done since I was a baby. I came from the womb with fish scales. I have known fishing all my life. When that's in your blood, that's not easy to give up. And they surrendered that. Not because fishing's bad. Not because fishing's evil, but because at this point in their lives, it keeps them from following Jesus the way they need to follow him. All fishing doesn't do that, but it would for these disciples who have become itinerant preachers with Jesus. They can't do what their fortune is and follow Jesus. So they surrendered fishing. But they also surrendered their fellowship, the people. And this is Capernaum. This is their hometown. This is what they know. And they're about to go into Judea, where they're very uncomfortable. They're about to go into Samaria, which is enemy territory for them. They're going to follow Jesus day and night, live on the side of the road. Do you imagine there were nights when they said, Boy, you remember what it was like when we had those fish fries back home in Capernaum? Fellowship. The people they knew. The livelihood they knew. And then it tells you one more thing. I have often wondered, the, the guy I would have liked to have talked to in this whole scene, really, is Zebedee. I don't know what he was like. I imagine he might have been a kind of a crusty old sea captain. You know, he's got on one of those skipper hats. And uh, craggy face, he lives out in the sun all day long. He's burned brown, wrinkles all over his face because he's been burned by the sun. And he's a tough old bird with all kinds of scars on his hands. And he's in that boat, and his sons are helping him. They're mending nets. They're all working together. 
And all of a sudden, this Jesus comes by and says, you two guys, come follow me. And I imagine Zebedee might have looked up from bending those nets and thought, are you kidding? Get back to your work. Do what, you're, do what I told you to do. And they're gone. Immediately. They don't say, hey, Dad, we're going to finish the nets. You know, they just drop them. I know as a father, my children are in the middle of doing something with me, and all of a sudden they just drop it and run. I'm in a bad mood. You know, when my children are younger, it's time for laying on of hands. For them to walk out of that boat, just walk away. They're gone. They're, all he sees is their backs. And you know what? They're not going to return to that. They're not coming back to do that. This isn't about their dad. But I'll tell you what it is about. It's about a realization that there's a relationship they need that's more important than that. There is a great deal of joy at a wedding. You're seeing a young man, young woman, maybe middle-aged man, middle-aged woman who finally found each other. And, and they're going to commit themselves to living together for life. And I've done a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. And they have all kinds of ceremonies that go on, little things that people do. I've heard people make public commitments to the audience, and the audience make commitments to the couple. I've, I've seen them sign Bibles and do all those kinds of things. There is one ceremony that has always bothered me. And if you did this, forgive me for my view about this, but I'm going to tell you how I viewed it as a father of three daughters. I didn't have any sons, only had daughters. I had three girls who got married within four years of each other. And I told people, I don't know which was more busted, my heart or my wallet, but both of them were pretty empty. And there's this ceremony that people do at weddings, and when they want to do it, I say, that's fine, go ahead and do it. And I keep my mouth shut, I don't say anything, but it bothers me. They take two candles, and one of them represents the candle of the parents on the groom's side, and one of them represents the candle of the parents on the bride's side. And then this new, this groom and bride get together, and they take those two candles, and they bring them together over a third candle, and together they light the wick of the third candle. Now, at that point, I have no problem with that. What's being said is we've taken the energy and life of the groom's family and the energy and life of the bride's family, and we've joined them together, and we've made a new light, a new family. Got no problem with that. But then they snuff me out. They take those other two candles and they go, and I just imagine the parents on the front row just keeling over. We're done. Let them live. But here's what's really being said, and there is an element to this. It is saying this new relationship takes absolute precedent over anything that happened in those earlier ones. How was it? The Holy Scriptures say it in Genesis, for this reason a man shall leave 
his father and mother and cling to or cleave to his wife. It, it's all new. And here's what I'm going to tell you. When Jesus calls a disciple, when he says to you and me, come be my disciple, he is demanding that your relationship with him supersedes all other relationships. It supersedes your relationship with your parents. It supersedes your relationship with your children. It supersedes your relationship with your siblings. It supersedes your relationship with your spouse. It becomes number one. And Jesus not only said that, but Jesus demonstrated that. On one occasion in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46, His ministry's really taking off. He's got lots of followers at this point. And it says in verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Precedent. Jesus said, and listen, he's not saying that because his mother's been ugly to him. He is saying that because he is trying to get across to all of us the spiritual relationship we have to God takes absolute priority over all other relationships. James and John demonstrate that. Immediately, listen again, immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. I don't know if Zebedee held that against Jesus. He busted up our family. Or if he understood how important it was that they follow Jesus. But that demonstrates the sacrificial, surrendering heart of these disciples to give up their fortunes, their fellowship, and the primacy of their families. Doesn't mean they cut them off, but it means those things take less of our focus and Jesus 
becomes first. There's always something to surrender when following Jesus. My, my last point under that point, and we're done. There is always something to surrender when following Jesus. Remember what he said? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Everybody's got to die. Everybody's got to die to the old life. And I was running down through a list of people who did. Paul surrendered his status among the Jews to follow Jesus. And he had a place of high priority among the Jewish teachers. Student of Gamaliel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a son of Benjamin, a Pharisee, righteous according to the law. What do you say about that? I count all that as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Surrender. Moses and David surrendered their sheep for their Lord. Moses was a great shepherd out there in Midian. He gave all that up when, Jesus, when God called him to follow. And David, he was pretty successful as a shepherd. And he gave it up to follow his Lord. Abraham surrendered his homeland. In the ancient world, leaving Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan would have been probably comparable to our leaving Florida to go to the deserts of Saudi Arabia. You don't know what you're going to find there, but there's a lot of hostility for us there. And the Canaanites were the most primitive, warlike people Abraham could have moved among. And he went from the height of civilization to that barbaric place. Surrender. Joseph surrendered his father's favor. All the blessings he had as the favored son of his father, he lost to follow his God and maintain his integrity, even in Egypt. Ruth, oh man, what a story Ruth is. Now, do not entreat me from following you or turn back. I will not do that. For your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And where you go, I will go, and where you are buried, there I will be buried also. Ruth followed Naomi's God, even away from her own people and homeland. And Elisha, I love, I love the story of how Elisha proved that kind of surrendering heart. Elijah came to him and he put his mantle over the top of Elisha, threw it over his shoulders, just turned around and walked away. And Elisha was out there in a field plowing with pairs of oxen and, and to show his complete surrender to following Elijah, he busted up the plow and burned the animals in a sacrifice over that. He, he killed the means of plowing and said, that's all behind me, and then went and followed Elijah. 
Those are just some of the cases. And my guess is, people in this room could offer similar stories. I sure hope so. I hope I have a story like that. I hope that I can say to my God and say to those around me, surrender? Yeah. I gave up some things to follow Jesus. And I don't say that with great sadness because I got the better end of that deal. But do you want to follow Jesus? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Steady disciples, submissive disciples, surrendering disciples. That's what it takes to be a good disciple of Jesus. And that's what we see in those four. And I'm persuaded in the other eight and in Paul, who was the 13th of those apostles, and those who follow Jesus sincerely and completely today. They are steady. They are submissive. They are surrendering. Are you that kind of disciple? Does that characterize your life? If it doesn't, it ought to. And maybe we need to make some changes. Spend less time sharpening our axes and more time cutting down the trees that prevent people from seeing our Lord. Maybe following him and calling him Lord and doing the things he says. Maybe giving up some of the things of our family, our fortunes, or our fellowships to follow Jesus completely. If we can help you to do that tonight, we'd sure love to pray with you about those things. And if you're not a child of God, come. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Give him everything and gain your soul. If we can help you in any way, come to the front while we stand and sing.